Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and I'm coming to you from a lovely Brooklyn morning while my guest is in her evening on the continent. And I want to apologize in advance. I'm having a little bit of allergy attack. The trees and the pollen, all of those things are a bit different for me right now. So apologies for the scratchy voice. My guest will compensate fully. So by way of introduction, she was appointed advisor to the president of the Republic of Namibia, His Excellency Dr. Hage G. Gingab in June 2015. In this role, she advises on policy and program priorities to harness a demographic dividend and create an enabling environment for sustainable entrepreneurship in Namibia under the overarching goals of poverty eradication economic inclusion, and shared prosperity. Her professional experience ranges from public policy formulation, national development planning, program monitoring, and multi-stakeholder coordination. In her preceding role as an under-30 chief executive officer of Team Namibia, she led a business support organization promoting local industry by advocating the preferential consumption of Namibian goods and services. In 2019, she was selected as an Obama leader, joining 200 young Africans in a leadership development program by former U.S. President Barack Obama. She's also founder and director of Oyayone Foundation, which works with and for under-resourced single mothers in Namibia to break the cycle of poverty by addressing basic needs and tackling asset poverty toward achieving social mobility. The foundation is building an enduring inheritance for our children's children by facilitating the ownership and management of economic assets by more Namibian women. Desiree Mathias, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Florence. It's a pleasure to join you. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's jump right in and get started. Tell us more. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? I am a young African with a Namibian passport, born in a small missionary town in the northern part of Namibia, but raised in the capital city, Windhoek. Previously, a private sector executive who found herself in politics. And I am now a public policy advisor. And I must say, I find my vocation in public service. Okay, nice, nice, nice. So how did you, coming from a small town, coming to the city, how did you find that vocation? And how how are you inspired in that work? I grew up in a very loving environment. I was showered by love by my grandparents, my mother's parents. And when I moved to the capital with my mother at the age of six, I think the foundations were in place. When you're loved right, you lose the fear of failure because you understand that back at the ranch, you're accepted unconditionally. So I had a lot of self-belief and confidence. I had big dreams, a lot of aspirations. And um, I think that charted my career path in private sector. I... I'm inspired by growth and I've always been driven to add value to the lives of people. And that is what made me pursue a career in marketing initially. My first love is brand strategy, advertising, marketing. That is my undergraduate degree. And I was an advertising executive for the first seven years of my professional life before pivoting into SME financing, public policy advocacy, and um, after a TED talk that I did on brands building nations and the contribution of branding to economic growth and you know strategic nation branding, my president picked me up. He was the president-elect at the time on his way to the state house. And he approached me and said, why don't you join my team to execute this work? Wow, the power of the TED Talk. So where did you study? I have a combination. Uh, I did my high school at a private high school, St. Paul's College in Windhoek. And then in both my undergrad and postgraduate degree, I completed in South Africa at Triple A School of Advertising in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. And my honors at the UCT Business School. And um, I'm currently actually studying 
towards an LLB at okay. the law school at the University of Namibia. Oh, wow. The stacking. Yeah. Stacking <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you started in marketing. And was that because you had kind of a creative self that you were trying to express? Or how, how did you become interested in marketing? And then how did you now bridge the marketing with the policy professional that you, you currently are? Yeah, I think... I think it was this intersection and a sweet spot, I think, of my passions, mm -hmm. natural capabilities, areas of interest, and also just the opportunities that came my way. I received a great scholarship. Growing up, I had a cousin who influenced me very much, and she studied at the AAA School of Advertising, which was the A-list school for anybody interested in marketing and advertising and branding. And she was a graphic designer. So I think the exposure to my cousin, Clara, is really what influenced me to even consider AAA as an option. But I'm also naturally, I think, a communicator um, and somebody who is quite social, a sanguine, you know. So it wasn't difficult for me to pivot into that direction of arts, um, creativity, mm -hmm. communications, mm -hmm. and, and strategy as a left brain. Mm -hmm. I have a background in public policy as well. And my springboard was working in education and getting an understanding of the challenges and the struggles that I was facing with my families in my classrooms. And so was there one of those moments for you where you, beyond in inspiring your TED Talk, what was there before that point in being picked up by the president? What was there a point where you said to yourself, oh, my goodness, I really need to yes. be taking this step? Yes, I think everyone has that crossroad moment, that light bulb moment, that epiphany, right? Mm -hmm. Mine came in business school. I'll never forget. I was in a lecture hall and I think we were, it was a, I think we we're just doing HR. Uh, it was an M MBA, like a business administration program. Mm -hmm. But I realized in that moment that I was less interested in chasing numbers and more interested in significance. And I realized that I wanted to channel the rest of my life towards helping businesses to grow and helping entrepreneurs to succeed. And at the time, I was I was about three, four months pregnant. I was doing the program concurrently to my pregnancy. My daughter was due in October. I was due to graduate in December the same year. And I gave my employer notice of my resignation. I didn't have any other career option. I didn't have a job that I was going to go to. But I realized that my time had come to make that shift. And I just started to call people who were doing what I was doing or what I was interested in doing. So I called a venture capitalist who was also a lawyer, who happened to become our first lady. Mm -hmm. I admired her very much. Mm -hmm. And I called Monica and I said, you did law, but you were able to pivot from law, you know, to create your own equity fund. Mm -hmm. How did you do it? And where do I begin? I called the head of our development funding institution, the DFI, the largest DFI in the country. And I said, Martin, I want to come and work with you. I'm, I'm prepared to start from the bottom up. I'll work my way up, but I need to make that shift. And I think because of that honesty, my network supported me and they were able to facilitate my transition from strategy, marketing, into the area of finance, you know, within the financial sector. Mm -hmm. And then I crossed over into public policy, and before I knew it, I was at the helm of Team Namibia, which really is the intersection, supporting Namibian goods and services mm -hmm. from a marketing point of view, but also public policy advocacy, lots of strategy, lots of finance capacity building and enterprise development. And I thought I had found my sweet spot when I was there, only to be appointed 12 months later to the presidency. Oh, wow. So, so Team Namibia, just to have a, a kind of a parallel understanding of it, is that something of a public-private partnership, a quasi-government organization? How, how is it situated? Is it publicly funded or privately funded? Yeah, it's a um, privately owned and funded mm -hmm. NGO. 
Okay. Operating as a Section 21 company, um, resourced by the private sector. Okay. So Business Namibia, the corporates, are the ones who contribute a percentage towards the operations of this organization. Mm -hmm. It is in their interest that we are able to negotiate retail marketing space, procurement quotas, and run mass broad-based public education campaigns on the importance of keeping the money in the domestic economy and really just mobilizing a social movement. So it was 100% privately managed, Mm -hmm. but during my time, we also managed to garner the support of government through the Ministry of Industry and Trade Mm -hmm. to make contributions towards the operations of the organization. Mm, interesting. Mm. So it's kind of like a chamber of commerce or something. Uh, uh, yes. For, for, it worked, for the country. It, it was very complimentary and worked hand in hand with mm-hmm. our chamber of commerce. Ah, okay. I actually worked at the chamber of commerce before crossing over okay. to team. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it, you, you really did kind of get on the ladder of building the blocks on the vertical of, of building businesses. Yeah, I get, yeah. It. I get it now. So I think this is a good point to ask my why the where question. We want to know why or how you came to be living and working and playing where you live. Well, Windhoek is the only place that I've ever lived beyond where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else was temporary. Cape Town was for educational purposes. It could never be home. Mm -hmm. And as a patriot, you know, my love and loyalty is for my country. I want to deploy my skills and resources to the benefit of fellow Namibian women and men. And um, as much as I will serve the continent, you know, home will always be where the heart is. Right. Right, I understand. So tell us more about where you are specifically in in the country, where you are now and why you are there. But let's, t- let's talk a little bit more about Namibia. You're my first Namibian guest. And so I'm very happy to kind of understand more about the country, the landscape, the city. So tell us more about, you know, what, what, what it is to be local in Wintook. A lot of people, when they come to Namibia, Mm-hmm. always have the same expression. They always say, this is one of the best kept secrets. Mm. It's a very unique place on the continent that has got some diverse landscapes. We are both uh, a desert land, but we also have got this long sea coast. Mm. Um, so we, we, we have the unique landscape where the masses of water of the Atlantic literally break on our golden sand dunes on the west coastline. We also in the interior have got very beautiful tropical landscapes. We're the fifth populated country in the world. We're only 2.5 million people. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of space. Um, We market ourselves on our endless horizons Mm. and the, the land is in some areas very rough and treacherous, very raw. The indigenous uh, Bushmen people, they have an expression in their language where it translated, it says, the land that God made, you know, the fierce land that God made. So a very raw, barren, untouched uh, natural landscape. Warm people, kind people. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah. listeners, I met Daisri in Morocco, <laughs> we were mutual friends, had a, a, an event, a party, big birthday bash. It was quite fun. And so we met and, and chatted, and I was just so interested and intrigued by her work. So if you were to compare some of the landscapes that we saw in Marrakesh to places in Namibia or in near, near Windhoek, how would you, how would you compare? Would you, could we find them similar? You, you mentioned a bit of desert. I was in love with the desert, yet the greenery of mm. of Marrakesh. So, is there something similar that you can describe, or that's part of the Namibian topography? Yes, what Marrakesh offered 
we do too in terms of, you know, the desert quad biking, mm-hmm. not to be biased, but Southern African sunsets and sunrises are unmatched. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think after Namibia, Botswana, we compete on the sunsets, just, uh-huh. you know, the splashes of color and the spectrum. Okay. But what I really found intriguing about Marrakesh is how antique and preserved and enchanting um, it is mm-hmm. their architecture, and I think you would see the same when you come to Namibia because of our colonial history. Mm-hmm. We were a German colony, mm-hmm. so the architecture is still very intact, and it sometimes feels like you could be in a small German town mm-hmm. um, when when you walk the street of Swakopmund on our west coast mm-hmm. and in the center window. We are the second cleanest city on the continent. Mm-hmm. which I cannot really say about Marrakesh, but also attributable to, you know, the sparse population. 400,000 people live in our capital city. Right. So we really maintain the the, the cleanliness of, and the standard. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you think that that's partially just the general culture of Namibians? Because, you know, we, we hear about Rwanda and, and understand that, you know, it's a very, it's, is, is it second to Kigali or to Rwanda? When you say the, the yes. second cleanest city, yeah. And <laughs> we used to be, we used to be number one. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're not so, <laughs> we're not so pleased that we've been knocked off the number one position by Chigali. Uh-huh. But I think they're doing the right things. It's about conditioning citizens. Mm-hmm. It's about volunteerism. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, m- members of the city really taking ownership of the environment. So our president does lead cleanup campaigns mm-hmm. on a monthly basis. Um, young people will go out into the communities and just pick up and clean up. Mm-hmm. And um, th- it's not regulated by any kind of law. You're permitted sure. to chew your gum and drink your drink on the street. But I think in our psyche, mm-hmm. we are proud of the environment and committed to maintaining it. Mm-hmm. 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 Very important. So you've been involved in the economy of the country for some time and, and have a good sense of, of where, where the country is going and also in your role. So can you tell us a little bit more, like getting, let's get more into your role with building the country. We know many African countries struggle with poverty and part of your role is to help the youth to, to start to eradicate that overall. So tell us a little bit more about the landscape that you're working in and, and, and what you're doing to, to build the youth sector. Yes, I've been privileged to serve president on two very important portfolios, mm-hmm. young people and enterprise development. Mm-hmm. And that's the future of the country. Absolutely. And I think in his wisdom, he paid them because, you know, there's that understanding that young people are the ones who have got the energy, the creativity and the resources to build a private sector that can generate growth for the economy through startups and entrepreneurship and MSME development. Mm -hmm. But it's arguably also the most challenging sector of our development. I mean, not only COVID, but there were mega trends even pre-COVID. Our economy was going through deindustrialization even before the pandemic hit. Our sub-Saharan Africa and specifically Namibia we're going through a protracted drought, you know, because of climate change, mm-hmm. adverse weather conditions. And in our context, that is devastating because agriculture is the sector that creates most jobs for young people, mm-hmm. especially in the remote areas and the unskilled. And I don't want to say uneducated, but undereducated mm-hmm. young people who have probably just got high school qualification without tertiary level. Mm-hmm. We were also going through a contraction in our construction because of a government policy stance to contain expenditure. We had to stabilize our fiscal. And because of the size of the Namibian government, we are 65% of our economy. Procurement is really, really catalytic in our economy. And a lot of developers and business people rely on government contracts and opportunities in order for them to do work. So when we started to consolidate public expenditure, sectors like construction took a huge knock. And construction is not only, you know, a stimulus 
at the micro level because of the the value of you know developing property mm-hmm. but also the jobs that it creates at mass so we lost a lot of jobs because of you know our efforts to contain the fiscus for the sake of sustainability right mm-hmm. um and then covid came and tourism hospitality is our you know services is one of our top 3 Mm-hmm. and we lost jobs from you know the lockdowns mm-hmm. as necessary as they were a lot of retrenchments um in that sector which affected again young people so in a post covid economic recovery trajectory we're trying to restore the sectors that were affected um hospitality tourism those enterprises by young people agriculture construction towards social housing and shelter issues of equity and social mobility and tackling asset poverty by you know giving people titles and houses and then also we're developing new frontiers because we realize that the rebound may take some time so we're aggressively pursuing the energy transition um through the synthetic fuels industry we are at the moment leading in our region on green hydrogen and its derivatives mm. like ammonia and that sector alone has the potential to create at least 32,000 new jobs for our young people mm-hmm. not even enumerating the spin-offs right on the periphery with all the MSMEs that will be contracted and you know as vendors and service providers so these are kind of the options on the table but having been in office for 7 years the call of the president to make sure that nobody is left out i think is a personal call for every person to reflect within their relational constellations who is at risk of being left behind and in my humble opinion and from my purview data tells us that not only in namibia it's an african problem but the most disproportionately excluded young african today is a 21 year old black female residing in a rural area of mm-hmm. Namibia or on the mm-hmm. continent. Mm-hmm. Our youth unemployment statistics corroborated young black women are more unemployed than their male counterparts and in our country context specifically we have a fatherlessness phenomenon. So many girls are raising the next generation on their own and you know what that means the burden on her is a limitation to pursue her education to achieve the potential within her career to put food on the table and that affects her psychosocially her health and even that child grows up in a suboptimal environment either the mom is compromised and has to accept um a poor relationship for economic security or she's exposed to abuse or just nutrition mm. there's not enough to put on the table you know for balanced diet which leads to stunting wasting malnourishment yeah. it mm-hmm. it continues mm-hmm. so we have more work to do to take young and unfortunately i have to nuance it to race more young black women and i have to drill even deeper young single mothers Mm-hmm. who are raising the next generation so that they can participate in the economy as owners and managers of economic assets and and develop a balance sheet that they can bequeath to their children. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um and 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 that seems to be the work of your foundation most definitely. And that's the sweet spot. I realized that I can do everything in my power through public policy. Mhm. to drive reforms make government more responsive but government needs help and mm-hmm. i think every single namibian has a role to play in helping another namibian to come up and that's what's really inspired my personal work to create this foundation oyayoni which means a net cluster you know going back for the others so that we can take more of those who have been left behind along with us and that that's what we're trying to do really to support the work of the president it's the only way that we'll achieve 
inclusive growth. It's the only way that we'll be able to share prosperity. And it's the only way that we can achieve social progression and transgenerational wealth creation. Right. So tell us, Oyayone is what language? It's Aramaic. Oh, okay. it's, 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 it's biblically inspired okay. Okay. Um, by the profound women's ministry of Mary Magdalene. Mm. I, I stumbled upon it serendipitously, mm-hmm. but it means going back for the 11 others that were lost. And she led a found ministry for women. And if you know the story of Mary Magdalene, she's the woman, the only woman that followed Jesus at the time. And, you know, the, they describe her in some theology as the one that Jesus loved. Uh, mm-hmm. She had a very, very hard past, but she was able to find that restoration. And when she stood up, she made sure that she helped others to stand up as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that inspires our work. Mm-hmm. Nice. Speaking of language, I like to ask a question around global speak. So we want to hear what you hear. I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Hmm. I think the word that just came to mind immediately is olupando. Oh, okay. Olupando is in my vernacular, mm-hmm. and it's an expression of gratitude. Oh, okay. And um, I, I think I operate from that space of gratitude, either appreciating or serving to give others the opportunity to express gratitude. Olupando is very central to my values. Yeah. And I think I use it every day because I have reason to say thank you every day, uh-huh. either to my creator or to those who are around me, uh-huh. enabling me to do the work, or I hear it from those who I'm serving. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and what language is that? Olupando. Olupando is Oshiwambo. Oshiwambo. Which is my mother, my mother language. Ah, okay. So it's just thank you or thanks or... But it's really more than that. It's a deeper sense of gratitude. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I find a lot is lost in translation because I feel generally that tonal languages have more of a resonance than a lot of the English words that we use. So I can I can understand what you mean by the, the depth of the gratitude that's meant in the word. Most definitely. So let's talk a little bit more about the actual work of doing the work of building building youth in the country and also specifically on how you've 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 fashioned your work to be a balance between running a foundation and also being an advisor so in your activities as an advisor what does your team look like what is what does it look like being out in the field what what is what is a day in the life of a daisy look like um credit to our president it, my role is in innovation I was the first advisor, according to the African Union, appointed to sit in the private office of the president mm. and really have that opportunity to form part and parcel of the decision-making process within mm. the presidency, which coordinates the other 28 sectors of our economy. I am one of four advisors to the president. My colleagues are a senior advisor on constitutional affairs and business sector interface. Another colleague is the economic advisor. And my last colleague is the political advisor. And he also serves as the spokesperson of the president, while I look at the dimensions of youth and enterprise. Mm. And we do a lot in supporting the president to discharge his constitutional mandate. It's a very heavy mantle that every leader wears. And it goes from anything from designing the policy priorities of the president, which we have documented in the Harambe Prosperity Plan. It's an impact plan of the government that provides the blueprint on how the president will deliver his mandate of inclusive growth, recovery, and shared prosperity. 
it's my responsibility to ensure that that priority policy document reflects the aspirations, the concerns, the frustrations, and, you know, the demands of young people. So really to just put youth youth issues at the center of government's development agenda. But we also, in our role, double up as a performance delivery unit. After we've developed the plans of the president and government, we now work with the sectors as an intra-governmental stakeholder coordinator, ensuring that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, uh, mm-hmm. ensuring that programs are happening, that we're on track, that if there's any kinds of troubleshooting required, we from the center try to support the implementing sectors to, to achieve the target. Mm-hmm. We're responsible for reporting um, on quarterly, annual basis, and and then we come in as subject matter experts. So speech writing, supporting wherever the president needs policy perspectives, analysis. We draft a lot of memos. Mm-hmm. During the first term of office, I can enumerate at least 300 policy statements that I have contributed to writing for the president. Mm-hmm. During COVID-19, I served as the focal point within the pres- within the private office, working with the task team. So we're on our 46th presidential COVID-19 public update. Mm. Every single one, you know, we've been able to write and inform the regulations and the responses by government, crisis management and communication. Mm. Um, and then I also interface with young people. And that's part of why I'm in Kampala today. I'm attending the African Peer Review Mechanism Youth Symposium, where I have an opportunity to sit and be and connect and engage and talk to young people, learn and be re-educated and pick up new issues and trends from young people across the continent, but also to really participate in some consequential you know, instruments, like we're validating a toolkit to help African governments to really assess their developmental progress, specifically on youth matters, appreciating that all governments are not starting from the same starting line. Some are better developed on youth development and empowerment initiatives, and for others, there are major deficits from frameworks, from institutions, and we need to support. And one way to do it is through peer reviews, peer exchanges and learnings so that we can apply what works across, you know, the region and the continent. Now, that's more or less what I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond being like the president's defender, yes. public protector, <laughs> mouthpiece and everything. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting something you said that you are patriot and I, I think of that and think about many youth nowadays in the struggles that they're experiencing. And I, I, I have to think that we're not grooming so many patriots these days. And so in your mind, how do we get back to this, you know, the proud citizen of in, ingraining that or not even indoctrinating that, but, but feeling like we are amongst people who really are proud and, and, and want to be patriots in their country from, from, from a youth level? I think love, loyalty, faith. These are inherent, intrinsic qualities. Everybody has the capacity to believe and to love and to serve and to defend, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's in all of us to love what we have always known, whether it's family, whether it's home, whether it's our country. That attachment, that bond is there. I think what troubles young people and disillusions them is ideology. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we get confused through ideology where we mix up our values with you know, different beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it's so important to bring young people back to the values, not only of patriotism, love and loyalty for country, but pan-Africanism. By teaching young people and reminding them to reject sectarianism, 
and everything that divide, that divides us, whether it's religion, whether it's gender chauvinism, tribalism, regionalism, those are the things that actually weaken us. And our greatest strength as a generation is our ability and our belief that we have to make our countries and our continent a better home for all of us. That is what unites us. That's the unity of purpose. That's the one thing that we have in common is a shared destiny. As a young person in Southern Africa, my future cannot escape the future of the Democratic Republic of Congo. As long as that country is destabilized, it affects my prosperity and that of my children. So I think that realization is what gives us, you know, common unity of purpose. And that should be our greatest strength and rallying point is that we, we, we are inextricably linked. But it begins with love and loyalty for country and Pan-Africanism, solidarity. Sure, sure, sure. So I am in the education sector. And so I'm curious about how you are interacting with on all levels of education, because where a lot of these values are are learned and, and nurtured aside from in the home. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the challenge of a lot of young rural women is that they're not accessing education at a level that's partially its quality, but also it's the quantity of it. How are you interacting with the education sector to ensure this, this more unified future? Yeah, like you rightly say, it's fundamental. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's formal and informal education. The mm-hmm. formal education system is one pillar in sociology, mm-hmm. but we know that there's church, faith-based organizations, they're a big part of education and also relational constellations, role modeling, the communities that people grow up in. It's a big source of education. Mm-hmm. And then the constitution, you know, and the institutions, the supreme law is a big part of our education, our psyche and, and setting the standards of what's permissible and not in our societies. And I think at all these levels, we really have to reflect on whether the reforms that we're driving are evolving as rapidly as the environments that we live in. Mm-hmm. Before I are in technology, for example, every 18 months, there's a shift in technology. Right. But the public education system, which is highly exposed to technology, only we, in our country, our reform cycles are every five years mm-hmm. to review the curriculum. Right. So I think the challenge for us now is equipping young people with the skills that they need to compete in the 21st century and also holding on to those fundamental values, those tenets that we shouldn't let go of and that should be maintained within our education system to preserve our common identity and common values, our shared values. So it's a process. Um, I think democracy is imperfect. You know, this idea of <laughs> um, this idea of, of the majority rules and we need to work by consent. There are some times where we begin to pull into different directions and it actually stops the collective from moving forward because everybody is pulling in a different direction. I think there comes a time when there is a measure for uniformity within society for the sake of progress. And you find that in the education system, sometimes our inability to leapfrog is because of so many different focus areas and touch points. Um, Education is one of the most challenging sectors, um, not I think only in our context, I think on the continent, just shaping it and making it fit for purpose. Mm. We're, We're producing according to the World Economic Forum, on average, 20 million fresh graduates every year that need to be absorbed into the labor market. But that transition is just so hard, largely because of the unintegrated way that we're doing education. It's like the institution is on the left, industry is on the right, Mm -hmm. and there isn't really work-integrated learning it's not really relevant. People can't hit the ground running. 
And now with technology, it's a whole nother ballgame because the borders are becoming, you know, transparent. We're, we're comp- I'm competing in tech with another young person in Ghana because mm-hmm. the borders don't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think there's a lot of work to be done on education. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to make it a bit more agile. Right. Nimble. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and I would say the work has to start with reclaiming education as African and not mm-hmm. the colonizer's education. Ooh, yes, that's a whole nother point. <laughs> exactly. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the German roots there. And so I, I, I'm curious about how much influence that still has on the education in Namibia. After the World War and Hitler, we were handed over to South Africa to manage because all the German troops were recalled to go and fight in the World War. Right, right. So we became a colonial, a fifth province of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And apartheid is actually the, the system that influenced us the most. So mm-hmm. our education system was built on the Dutch Africana system of Africans. And we have a lot of that historical context, actually, more, less than the Germans, more mm-hmm. than the Germans. Okay. Mm-hmm. In terms of decolonizing the curriculum, you know, of course, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to mainstream indigenous knowledge, mm-hmm. indigenous, to maintain a measure of indigenous languages. Yes. But I've got to say that we are, I think, quite a blended system. Mm-hmm. Um, whereby the, the indigenous aspects are included into the curriculum. The only thing we have not really succeeded is completely replacing the Western ideologies, European historical context with African and Namibian historical context and ideologies. I think that's probably the, the aspect that still needs a lot of reform. Yeah. And that's but, across yeah. The, the continent. Yeah. That's, that's across the continent. Difficult. Yeah. That's the most difficult part, partially because we don't necessarily have the historians that are, you know, doing the research and putting it all together. They're not the ones that are getting funded to do this thing. So, yeah, I hear you on that. That's a. I, I started a reading group. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yes. And, Good. Yes. And, and we focus only on modern African literary context. Yes. For the simple reason that, I mean, I had a great education, private school education, mm-hmm. but I was reading English literature, you know, Watership Down, and <laughs> mm-hmm. I never read Chinua Achebe Things Fall Apart until I came of age as a 30-something-year-old. And I realized, you know, my own agency, and I said, I've got to go and read. I pray Arma. The beautiful ones are not yet born. I had to go and find that literature myself because my education system didn't give it to me. Right. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you all about, you know, all the other English authors. Right. Exactly. So it begins with just reading our own mm-hmm. and embracing our own writers, historians, archivists, stories, narratives, telling and owning our own stories. But we also need to write. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to ask you before I get more into the you that's the reader and maybe the watcher or the listener is a a mindset question. And it's about a mindset hack. So we want to know what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? Now, this is one that you can imagine, one that you know of, or one that you practice. Mindset. Top of mind. It can be very intimidating in my space. Um, addressing large crowds, very powerful people, concentrated into one room. Mm -hmm. So whenever I take the podium, you know, there's always that potential for backlash with social media. You can say one word and the world will crucify you. It's like cancel culture has become so scary. Right. Because it's just made the world so unforgiving of our humanity, frailties, weaknesses. We always have to present perfect. So my mindset, every time I have to stand up and take the podium, I just tell myself, 
they really, really love me. Mm. They're really interested in what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. That gives me the assurance and the confidence and the peace to just speak my truth without fear of any kind of backlash or reaction. Yeah. They really love me and they want to hear from you. I love that. Your whole, the energy of love that you bring to this is so refreshing. And so I think that says it all. They really, really love me and they want to hear from me. And that, and that attitude is so uplifting and liberating. So yeah, that's a great one. I love it. Thank you for that. Thanks for the question. Mm, Yeah. So transitioning into the, the Daisy, that's not the advisor or the running of a foundation. I let's ask a question. Are you a listener, a reader or a watcher? We know that you're a reader and we know some of your reads. You can share some of those, but, but who are you when you're not the working person and what are some of your favorite reads, watches or listens or some of your favorite activities? Who am I? Is I'm, I'm a faith-based person mm-hmm. and I try to live my life according to the word of God. So mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time feeding my spiritual side. I'm a mom, a single mom. Mm-hmm. I'm parenting a 10-year-old, gorgeous, beautiful, kind, thoughtful girl. Her name is Ohole, which means love. Oh, nice. In, in our vernacular. Uh-huh. I love exercise and sports. It's what actually helps me to keep the center holding. Yeah. And so I run a lot. Uh-huh. And I also experiment with other sporting codes. But I think I'm a runner first. Yeah. A marathoner. Oh, wow. I try, to, I, I try to run a marathon every year. Okay. And I've now registered for November. I'll run the Johannesburg Soweto Marathon, 42 kilometers. Wow, nice. So where where have your marathons taken you around the world? Well, only in the region. My first marathon was in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. I've done two in Namibia on the West Coast and in the city. Every year as I grow older, I draw nearer to a full marathon. So I run my age. Yeah. I ran 35. This year I'll run 36. Okay. And and then once a year. So next November, I'll be in Johannesburg for 42. Okay. I'm not in that league yet where I'm doing the big six, New York, Boston. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get there. I'll yeah. get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. That's great. I'm a runner as well. And so I'm, I always love to hear running stories. So that's it's so nice. liberating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it is a, a big part of meditation for me. So I, uh, I've, I'm working my way back into um, my regular runs. I've, I recently had some some strength challenges in my knees mm-hmm. from running for years and years, but I'm getting back. I'm, I'm getting to twice a week soon. So wow. that's, I'm excited about that. <laughs> I can relate. I suffered a very heavy personal loss. Mm-hmm. I'm the eldest of three children. Mm-hmm. I had two younger brothers mm-hmm. and my immediate younger brother, who happened to be my birthday twin, you know, we lost him in a, in a fatal car accident. Mm. So I've been extremely destabilized. I haven't been running and the center hasn't really been holding, mm. but I'm, I'm trying to get back into routine because I know that is also part of the healing process. Yeah. Running is meditation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sending you runner meditation vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So Desiree, this has been wonderful. I really enjoyed our conversation. I love your perspective. And so as we start to sign off for today, I want you to share some final thoughts with our listeners. Boy, I'm not really sure what a final thought would be. <laughs> Last words, you know, um, words to live by, words to grow on, something like that. I think something that has kept me anchored in the seven years in public policy, but also just something that I apply as a general rule, which I think should help every young professional in this competitive, intense, and sometimes very unforgiving world, is to be mindful of the voices that you're allowed to speak to you. Not everybody is qualified. Not everybody's opinion is qualified. So I told myself from the very beginning, especially in in public office, you're expected to listen to everybody, reflect on everybody's feedback and 
criticism and just absorb, 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 because that's what we're supposed to do. But we're people too. We have emotions and we're affected sometimes, you know, by, by public opinion, especially when it's, it mischaracterizes you and you're misunderstood. So for every young professional, I think my words of advice would just be to only accept criticism from the people who have loved you enough to tell you and acknowledge when you've also done right. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is able to recognize a good deed and come to you and say, I commend, I compliment, well done, I saw that, is qualified to come back to you and say constructively, you missed it here and, and you know you should reconsider that. But if it's only a critical voice, I don't think it serves you because they are not honest enough to acknowledge the full spectrum of the work that you're doing. That has helped me to filter out negative voices because your mindset is actually what protects your character. And it doesn't matter how much success you achieve in life. It's easy to get to the top because of skills and capabilities, but it's character and mindset that are going to sustain you at the top. So you need to protect your character by protecting your heart and that's a mindset issue. And a lot of it is influenced by the voices you're listening to. Your own voice and the voices outside. And with social media, there's just such an intensification of feedback. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, only accept advice from the people who have loved you enough to also acknowledge when you've done right. Yeah, I love that. That yes, that yes, indeed. So wise. Such wisdom. We are looking forward to seeing where you go next. And, and maybe let's ask that. So you're, you're with the presidency in the second term now. And is there a term limit for, for elected presidents in Namibia? Yes, um, we have served two terms. Oh, we've served one complete term of five years. Okay. His Excellency was reappointed in 2020 for a second term of five years. Okay. So we're in our final term. Okay. He has reappointed me to serve him to the end. Okay. And we are 30 months away from our our final, uh, you know, our final term. Right. Yeah. So it's really about legacy now and just the final sprint. It's an agile sprint at this point. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. To really to make a mark and, and bring something wonderful. I yeah. definitely see you as a diplomat moving forward. Do you have sights on any elected posts? No, it's really hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but my assurance and my commitment is just that at whatever level, in whichever capacity, I'm a public servant and I'm prepared to predicate the rest of my lifetime in service of humanity. Nice, nice. Wow. So this has been such a wonderful conversation. We have very rich show notes. You'll learn more about Namibia and also about policy work, et cetera, et cetera. So always check out the show notes, folks. We love to make them accessible to you to have a deeper dive into our local citizens as guests. You can reach us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at www.glocalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review, share, tell a friend. It helps people find good content. So until next time, bye for now. <laughs>